want you to look with me to two places in Scripture today. Uh, I want to read out of Isaiah 9, and then I want to read out of Matthew chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 9, and then out of Matthew chapter 25. Today I'm kind of introducing a series of messages that will really kick off next week called A Classic Christmas. Um, and we're going to take a journey through uh, the, the, the Word and leading up to our candlelight and communion Christmas Eve service, but I want us to take a journey to a more traditional and classic Christmas. But in order to do that, I want to answer the question today, what is Advent? And some of you grew up in church settings where Advent was the term everybody talked about, and others of you grew up in other church settings where everybody talked about Christmas, but Advent or the season of Advent or the tradition and theology around Advent was rarely ever talked about. I'll have to tell you that uh, I'm more than a little bit nervous today communicating uh, this concept. I, uh, there's a, there's a, uh, this, this has intrigued me for the last couple of years. I didn't grow up in a setting that talked a lot about Advent. We talked a lot about Christmas, but we didn't talk a lot about Advent in my faith background and my church experience. And so I've been intrigued the last couple of years and I've studied about Advent and the church traditions that celebrate it and how they do it. And, and it's really helped me have a greater appreciation for Christmas. It's helped me have a greater appreciation for the Incarnation. And I really want to share that journey with you. Um, usually, when I come into a service, I have a, a deep commitment to be sound biblically, but to do that in a relevant way that no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, whether you're new or whether you're an aged believer, or maybe you're not even a follower of Christ yet, you're what I call a seeker who is searching, I'm going to leave you something practical that you can take with you. And that's still my goal today. But I have a challenge because these are some deep truths and I'm asking the Holy Spirit to help me today to say these things so they're not academic, but they are life-giving and that all of us glean something from them. So I'm going to challenge you to engage with me, put your thinking caps on, and anytime my grandfather, who was a very uneducated man, would try to teach me something new, he would always say, son, if you'll stay with me, I'm going to learn you something. Okay, so I'm going to say that to you. If you'll stay with me, I'm going to try to learn you something over the next few moments. I'm going to try to teach you something that God has been teaching me. Isaiah chapter 9, um, I want us to read in verse, uh, beginning of verse 2, and then I want to go to Matthew 25. Before I begin reading out of Isaiah 9, let me give you the setting, okay? Isaiah is a prophet who is uh, writing about a time in Israel's history when they have been beaten down by foreign nations. Um, Self-motivated kings have ruined them. Uh, Self-directed prophets have misled them. Apathetic religious leaders have called them to cause them to lose their spiritual fervor. And so they have been their own enemy, worst enemies, but they have also been beaten by outsiders. They have been taken and enslaved. Uh, Their children have been killed through infanticide. They have been murdered through genocide. I mean, these people have been devastated as an ethnicity, as a people, as a nation. There is great injustice. There is great oppression upon them as a people. And inside of them, during this oppression, there is this longing for a real prophet who will speak the truth. There is this longing for a real king who will reign in righteousness. And so Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 9, in the midst of their oppression, in the midst of a world of evil and sin and injustice, begins to light a spark of hope on the inside of them. But there is one coming. 
that there is an anointed one coming, a wonderful counselor, a mighty God who is going to come into the world and make all that is wrong right again. So in Isaiah 9 you read, I want you to hear the longing and anticipation, the hope, the expectancy. There is real darkness, there is real evil, there is real injustice, but lined underneath all of that is this anticipation of the coming of one. Verse 2 of Isaiah 9, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and on those living in the land, deep darkness, a, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that... You have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the greatness of His government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over His kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is hundreds of years before the birth of Christ to a nation of people who are slaves and oppressed. Now you have... The announcement that there is one who is coming who will change it all. He will be a child. This is a looking forward prophetically to the first coming or the first advent of Christ when He was born as a baby in a manger. Now, I want you to look in Matthew chapter 25. Here's the context of this passage. Where Isaiah's passage was looking forward to the first coming of Jesus Christ... Jesus is now on the earth. He has already come. He is teaching in Matthew 25. And He is telling a parable so that all of those who are listening will be prepared for the second coming or the second advent of Christ. I want you to notice in this verse of Scripture, in light of His second coming, which we all are waiting on, there is this sense of joy... This expectation, the same joy, expectation, and hope that you find in Isaiah. That same looking and longing for Him to come. The bridegroom is coming. When I read this, you will see there is joy, hope, and expectation. But lined inside of that, in light of the second coming, is the somber reality that you ought to be ready. You never know when He's coming. You need to be ready. You need oil in your lamp and be prepared because the Son of Man comes. Listen, Matthew 25, 1. And that, at that time, the kingdom... Jesus is saying this. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish. Five of them were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in their jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. And they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. 
The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet. The door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, Jesus says, because you do not know the day or the hour of the second coming or the second advent of Christ coming back into the world. Over the last several days, and really been the last couple years, I've been thinking a lot about Advent. More about why some churches celebrate Advent and talk a lot about it. In other churches, it's almost absent from their vocabulary. As I said, I grew up in a church context that talked a lot about Christmas, but very little, if any at all, about the concept of Advent. I always knew enough about Advent that I knew that Advent and Christmas were synonymous in many ways, but I didn't understand the deep theological truths that were undergirding the church tradition of celebrating Advent. So personally and in my own family and in the broader context of our church as a whole, I want this Christmas season to be one where we are all more informed about what Advent really means, the rich theology behind it and the deep history it has in church tradition. For some of you, this will be going back to things you have known since you were a children uh, and refreshing some of those memories. Others of you, this will be brand new. For those of you who grew up in Methodist, Presbyterian, Anglican, Lutheran, Episcopalian, or Catholic backgrounds, you probably have a better understanding of Advent than I do. For those of us who grew up in evangelical churches, would be like Baptist or non-denominational or charismatic or Pentecostal churches, most likely you didn't hear a lot or celebrate in detail the ritual of the Advent. If you did, you were probably the exception to the rule. So let me ask. Um, whether it was Methodist, Anglican, uh, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, uh, Catholic, Lutheran, whatever. How many of you grew up in a, in a church background like that that celebrated Advent or talked about it? Raise your hand high enough. I just, I just kind of want to see uh, who I'm talking to. In the first service, it was about 70% of the crowd uh, grew up in, in an environment where Advent was a part of their faith background. So much less in this service. So... Um, so the question is, why, why the difference? Why, why does one church talk more about Christmas? Everybody celebrates the birth of Christ. And others use the season or the concept or the tradition of Advent. The difference is basically between liturgical churches and non-liturgical churches. A liturgical church is one that follows a very structured, often ornate order to their service. There are prescribed scripture readings, there are sermons or devotions, often called homilies, that are given a theme for the day. There are singing of hymns that connect with the scripture and connect with the theme of the sermons, and they're woven in together. And the order of the service is called the liturgy. But the liturgy, it goes beyond that particular service or the worship of that particular day. The liturgy is planned for the entire year in liturgical churches and it's called a liturgical calendar. Churches in the same denomination will often share a liturgical calendar and they have the same sermon topic of that day and they have the same scripture reading for that day and all of their churches all over the world are doing all of that together and it brings a feeling of connectedness in a community within that broader community of faith. Churches whose services are less structured or unscripted, some would call them improvised, 
are called non-liturgical churches. And most of those churches operate independent of their denomination when it comes to whatever their order of service is going to be or whatever their annual church calendar is going to be. Years ago, evangelical churches, which are non-liturgical churches typically, especially charismatic and Pentecostal churches, broke away from anything that resembled liturgy because it was considered empty ritual. It was confining. It didn't provide room for the Holy Spirit to move in their eyes. There was no freedom in the middle of all of that ritual. And some went even far enough to say that all of that ritual in the liturgy was dead religion. And those of us in evangelical circles were often guilty of criticizing our brothers and sisters from liturgical churches of worshiping the liturgy more than worshiping the Lord. And while that may have been true in some cases, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because for many people, the structure, the liturgy, the predictability, the connection to church history, the ritual actually helps them connect with the Lord. While one may find it confining and limiting, another person may find that structure liberating in a way that helps them connect with God in a more meaningful way. The funny thing is, even those who proudly say, we don't have a liturgy, we don't have an order of service, we believe in leaving everything open to the move of the Holy Ghost, those people have a liturgy. It's not written down, it's unwritten, but they still have a liturgy. I'll give you an example. My grandfather's church was a very rural Pentecostal church growing up, and they were it was very poor people that made up that church, and I'm not... I'm just, I'm just saying what was the culture. I mean, I, nobody ever got up and said this. We just learned this. And maybe it was said. And this mentality is shared in a lot of small rural churches more than, more than you know. But, but in my, in my grandfather's church, in their minds, they were the poor, uneducated people. And all the Methodists were the rich, educated people. The Episcopalians were the rich, educated people. The Presbyterians were the rich, educated people. And so those, those, those ways of worshiping in the liturgical churches was structured and strict. It didn't provide room for the Holy Spirit to move and in order to differentiate themselves from the rich people, they threw out the liturgy. In order to differentiate themselves from the structure and have freedom of the Spirit to move, they threw out the order and celebrated the freedom of the service. And and they prided themselves in not having a liturgy and not having a, a uh, an order. It was the spontaneous move of the Holy Spirit and they celebrated freedom and revival. But now looking back There was a liturgy. Here was the liturgy. We're going to sing a song and sing it again and again and again until Sister Marie shouts hallelujah and gets excited and then everybody around the church gets excited and jumps up and down and says hallelujah and we have a runaway. Some of you have no clue what I'm talking about. There are others of you that know exactly what I'm talking about. We don't have a liturgy. But the next Sunday, guess what they did? They sang the same song over and over and over again until it struck a chord in Sister Marie's spirit and she jumped up and had hallelujah and there was a a worshipful outbreak in the service that day. It was a liturgy. Obviously... We are a non-liturgical church. We don't go by a liturgical calendar. Our, Our services are more free, less structured, and they're not written down. And yet, we have our own liturgy as a church. Here it is. Changes sometimes, but more often than not, there's an opening video, three to five worship songs, announcement, offering a sermon, a prayer team, benediction, and a blessing. That is our liturgy. The error is not in having a liturgy 
or not having a liturgy, the error, the sin, would be in the pride that says the way we do it is the only right way to do it. The pride is because we worship this way and God touches us this way. This is the way God has to touch you. And all of those people that do it with the liturgy, that's so ornate, that's so ritualistic. I mean, there's no way God can move in that. Maybe not for you, but there are a lot of people who find connection in that structure. For example, I was pastoring in Arkansas and um, years ago and, and uh, we had been having a special series of Sunday night services with emphasis on the power and the personal work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And there were many churches from liturgical backgrounds whose believers were hungry for more of God. And, and, and so they, they, were coming to, they were going to church all over the place. And so they came into our services and many of them experienced the Holy Spirit in a way they'd never known Him before. I mean, a powerful encounter with the power of the Holy Spirit. So much so that it made a profound impact in the way they worshipped. It made an impact in the way they lived their life. And it began to create some issues in their churches many of many of these that were happening was from a particular Lutheran church and and so the priest literally said if you guys want to you know want to be that expressive and things like that maybe you need just need to go on over there where he pastors and that's what they did and so when I when I began to talk with them a little bit about how it was going they said to me pastor I love the freedom of worship I love the passion in the preaching I love the uh, the understanding of the word that I'm getting here I said but what do you miss they said we miss having communion every Sunday We miss that having communion. And here's the deal. We believed that communion was so sacred, so profound, so rich, we were afraid that if we did it every Sunday, it would become ritual and habit and we would lose the sacredness and the profound. Do you know why they did it every Sunday? It was so sacred, it was so rich, it was so profound, they wanted to do it every Sunday. And there's truth in all of that. So what I said to them is, I respect that. So I'll have an associate pastor at this given time in between service every Sunday that'll get all of you liturgical people that have been filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, excited, experiencing a season of revival, but you miss the structure and the ritual. Obviously, we're not going to turn our service into a Lutheran church or an Episcopalian church, but we can serve you communion every Sunday if you want it. And so they begin to meet off to the side and they begin to take communion and, 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 and honor that. The issue is not whether you have a liturgy or you don't have a liturgy. The issue is that we can learn something from each other. Liturgical churches can teach us about the richness of church tradition, the theological significance of those traditions that have been celebrated through sacred rituals. They can teach us about respect for God's house, a reverence for what is holy and what is sacred. And at the same time, we can teach them about freedom and worship, about the power and life of the Holy Spirit that not only comes into our services on Sunday, but that breathes life into us so that we can be marketplace, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers into the business community, into the world that we live in, that the same Holy Spirit that fills our worship fills our life and allows us to be church on a mission Monday through Saturday we can learn from each other and what I want us to do this Christmas and I really feel it, you know this is what makes me nervous there's an old Chinese proverb that says a man that thinks he's leading and nobody's following is just taking a walk (laughs) And, and I, 
I got this stirring in my heart to reconnect with the tradition of Advent and, and celebrate the theological truth of that church tradition. And my concern is, I'm just taking a walk. Nobody else wants to go there with me. And so I want to lead us. I'm taking a risk, you know. I want to, I told the staff, I want to, I want to celebrate in the next several weeks a classic Christmas. And I want to dive into the Advent and I want to reconnect some of those from liturgical backgrounds with those things they grew up with. And I want us to learn, those of us that had no faith experience in our childhood or those of us that grew up in context without it. I want to blend those traditions together because it has helped me. My research and understanding of this has helped me see the incarnation. It has helped me see the coming of Christ. It has helped me experience the life of Christmas in a greater and more meaningful way than ever before. The word Advent literally means coming or arrival. As in Isaiah's passage in Isaiah 9 was a prophecy of the first advent, Jesus coming as a baby in a manger. And Jesus' parable of the ten virgins was a, a statement about the second advent of Christ, the second coming of Christ. The focus of the entire season of advent is the celebration of the birth of Jesus and the anticipation of His return as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It is far more than marking a 2,000-year-old historical event. It is celebrating the theological significance, the nature of God that would be willing to robe Himself in the frailty of human flesh and become one of us so that He might save us. But it is more than that. The Advent not only focuses on the salvation of man in the here and now through Jesus Christ becoming a man, but it looks forward to the second Advent or the second coming of Christ with anticipation and hope in the same way that Isaiah's people looked for the first coming. The reality that he came as a baby, he was a suffering Savior, but when he comes again, he will be a conquering king. There are scriptures like I read to you today from both the Old Testament and the New Testament, Isaiah and Matthew, that intertwine with this dual emphasis of both the past and the future as it relates to Advent, the double focus. It symbolizes a spiritual journey that we take as individuals and that we take as a congregation. Advent affirms in us that Christ has come, that He is present right now today in our world, and He is returning back to this earth in power. There is a threefold element of Advent. We celebrate He has come into the world. God has broken into human history that He is here now through His church and living through His people in our lives on a daily basis and yet we can also look forward to Him coming in a greater way when He will establish His kingdom upon this earth once and for all. When we truly get this, when we truly understand what Advent really means, it provides a basis for us to live a genuine kingdom life. Because holy living comes out of a heart that has a sense that we are living in between the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus. We celebrate God's inbreaking into history. We 
call that the incarnation. When God put on human flesh, He became one of us. We celebrate that in the Advent. But we also anticipate when He will come and make all things right. I am saved today, but I am not as saved today as I will be when I walk into heaven. Right now, I am saved in spirit, but my body can still get sick. I can still be depressed. I can go through trials. But when mortality puts on immortality, when corruption puts on incorruption, when I'm changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, I will be made like Him. And it will be the consummation of all things. It will be... And so I celebrate the inbreaking of God into human history through the incarnation when God became man, a baby was born in a manger. I look with hope and anticipation into the future when He returns, when all things will be made right, when the conquering King comes. We call that the consummation. But in the between time, we are a church that lives commissioned. In the between time, I am to love God with all that is within me, my heart, my mind, my body, and my soul, and I am to love my neighbor as myself. He didn't just put me on this earth in between time to suck oxygen. He put me on this earth to advance His kingdom. We are a people of missional purpose to be a light to our neighbor and to the rest of the world who doesn't know who Jesus Christ is. Incarnation, commission in the right now, and consummation in the future. The spirit of Advent is one of joy, hope, expectancy, and anticipation. And there's a longing. I don't know if you picked it up when I read out of Isaiah 9, but in Isaiah's voice, there's this longing for for one who would come, who would deliver them from the oppression, who would deliver them from the tyrant, who would deliver them from the injustice, and who would deliver them from their own evil that had been inflicted on themselves. There was a yearning from deliverance Just like the first Israelites who were slaves and God delivered them out of Egypt. They walked across on dry ground. They went into the wilderness and wandered and eventually they walked into the promised land. There is a heart like that for those of us that have been become believers in Christ. We came from the Egypt of sin. He delivered us miraculously, just like He delivered the nation of Israel out of Egypt. He delivered us miraculously through His saving grace. Now we're in the in-between time, in the wilderness, wandering, waiting, and looking for our promised land. The same hope and expectancy that was in their heart, the same hope that the slaves and the oppressed had for deliverance ought to be in our hearts. In one way, we have already been delivered, and another way, we are still looking for our full deliverance when we will be united with Him throughout all of eternity. That hope of Advent is faint at times. And the God of Advent seems distant at times. But there is still in those distant moments an anticipation that Advent reminds us of that there will be a king who will rule with justice and righteousness over his people. There will be a king who will bring peace to this earth, an anointed one, a Messiah who is coming to this earth again. He has come once, he will come again, and he is going to set every wrong right because he is a just judge. Part of the expectation of The Advent is that somber reality that was addressed in the parable in Matthew 25. There's these ten ladies 
um, who are preparing for a wedding feast and the bridegroom is coming and they're all excited. Maybe they're one that'll get to be the bride and, and they're all excited and five of them got ready and put oil in their lamp and five of them didn't. And when Jesus talks about the second advent in the parable, there is that joy and hope and expectation, but there is also that sobriety that you better be ready. Don't, 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 don't act like they did and think I got time to go back into town and get my mo- more oil. I'm, I'm only 16 years old. I mean, I got the rest of my life ahead of me or I'm young and these are the decisions people make when they get old or right before they die these are the things they no no in in Advent there's not only the joy and expectancy of the child that has come God became man there's not only the joy and expectancy and hope that the judge is going to return and set every wrong right there is that somber reality that when he returns will we be ready so there's this dual theme in the Advent Threat and promise. The theme of threat, a warning. Are you ready? It asks a question. Are you ready? The king is coming. The king is coming. The king is coming. Are you ready? And then there's the theme of promise. Hold on. The child of God, hold on. Depressed, afflicted, sick, downtrodden, hold on because the king is coming. That suffering savior is returning as a conquering king. Hold on, hold on, hold on. There's hope and anticipation and strength to be garnered in the same way we were singing just a moment ago. Because you are with me, I will not fear. If I know He is with me, like Moses said, I don't want to go anywhere without you, Lord. If I know you are with me, it can sustain me. And if I can hang on, like the song of the slaves in Isaiah 9, the song of slaves throughout generation that had the hope of Christ, Israelite slaves, and even in modern history, it was the hope of a different future that kept them alive in seasons of injustice. And when you can look forward to a day that is as real as tomorrow's sunrise, the King is coming again. It provides hope in the evil and the misery that we endure in this world. I really debated whether or not to do this. It's tradition and more than anything else. But I really felt like for me, my family's a young family, we're trying to figure out as Haley and I parents with our kids, establishing our own traditions Uh, And some of you are young families, you're trying to figure out how to do that as well. And one thing about Advent, when you celebrate it like liturgical churches have done in the past, it provides an opportunity not only for it to be celebrated here at the church, it provides an opportunity for it to be celebrated in the home. And so I challenge you to pay attention over the next few weeks and as we go through these series of messages on a classic Christmas and celebrating these deep theological truths of the Advent, And look for opportunities to add meaningful Christmas traditions that actually have spiritual symbolism to teach your family about the coming of Christ the first time and the anticipation of His coming the second time. How many of you have, in your past experience in faith, have used Advent candles or Advent wreaths? How many of you have done that before? Probably 15-20% of the, of the crowd. Next week, I'm going to, um, I'm going to bring in an Advent wreath. And, um, and let me explain a little bit about what that is. An Advent wreath is, um, most of the time they have evergreen there. And, and the evergreen is symbolic of new life, freshness. 
It's in a circular shape, um, which is infinity, the enduring faithfulness of God. Um, And there are four candles that are around the outside of the wreath. Um, Those candles range in color depending on church tradition. And so what I'm saying to you right now can vary from church tradition. There is no emphatic way to do this, but it helps us connect with church tradition and understand the theological truths of Advent. So um, those four candles around the outside of that circle each represent one Sunday of Advent. Let me say this. Advent is to Christmas what Lent is to Easter. People prepare in Lent with fasting and repentance and it leads up to, pre- uh, to Passion Week and prepares their heart. Many people fast and pray and it's repentance. In the same way, Advent leads up to Christmas with joy and expectancy and hope. And so the official, on the official calendar, Advent begins next Sunday. And, and in the Advent, uh, the Advent calendar, you light the first Advent candle next week and that candle is a symbol of hope and expectancy and we're going to light that candle next week and each week you light a different candle they have color and the colors are symbolic and and each week you light a different candle there's a progression of lighting the candles and here's the importance of the progression the lighting of the candles is a reflection that light has broken into darkness and there is a continual as you get closer to Christmas another candle is lit which means more darkness has been dispelled and more light has come into the world and you light it each week and it helps you as a believer understand the theological significance of the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. There is a revelation of the kingdom of God that has come to this earth now in Christ, but there is a revelation of the kingdom that is not yet here. And while I am excited about the power of God that is available through Jesus, there is still hope and anticipation growing on the inside of me. There is awareness that something has happened, but there is an excitement that more is coming. And so as I light a candle each week, It reminds me of that reality that darkness is being dispelled. Light is coming into the world, overcoming evil. And it is a reminder to me that there is something happening, but something more is yet to come. And each candle and each Sunday has a different theological theme until all four candles are lit. And there is one white candle on the inside that is known as the Christ candle. And then on Christmas Eve, that one is lit the night before we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And we will do that on Christmas Eve and light the candle and have a candlelight communion Christmas Eve service on that day. Now I want us to, I want us to do something today before we leave. And for some of you, um, you're not ready for Christmas. And I'm okay with you not being ready for the trees and the decorations and the crowds and the the green and the red and all of that. I'm okay with that. But in your distaste for what maybe we have done in our American culture to Christmas, don't let your weariness of that cause you to miss what it was about before it was all of that. Before it was all of that, it was about the advent. The first coming as this innocent infant that gives way to the second coming who is a conquering king and somehow the advent teaches us that there is power to live in the middle and that's what I want to talk about next week every week I'm in this classic Christmas next week I'm going to every sermon starts with it's a wonderful life 
And I'm going to take clips from the movie that undergird the Advent theme for that week. Next week is, It's a Wonderful Life, Endure It. (laughs) Don't miss that. You know, December 21st, the world's going to end, if you, if you hadn't been paying attention, you know. That's a great Sunday, the Sunday before, the Friday the world's supposed to end, for me to talk about the real Advent. That Sunday is, it's a wonderful life, believe it. I really challenge you to have your friends and family members, so we're going to connect with rich history and theological truth and practical realities that can be applied to our life. It's going to be a classic Christmas and it will culminate with the Christ candle and a candlelit communion service on Christmas Eve. I didn't get to experience that as a kid growing up, but I didn't have that in my faith background, but I'm really looking forward to that, experiencing that journey with you. I want you to stand with me if you will. Pastor Bear is playing a song that is theologically true all year long. But it's really true when you're talking about the Advent. It's what Moses was saying when he said, God, I don't want to go if you're not going to go with me. Be with me. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. That's what the incarnation is. He was screaming, I got health and I'll bring it, but I got to be one of you first. I've got forgiveness and I'll bring it, but I got to be one of you first. It was a God who said, I want to know what it is to cry. I want to know what it is to be tired. I want to know what it is to be thirsty. I want to know what it is to suffer. I want to know what it is so that when you need it, I can be touched with the feelings of your infirmity. That's what Advent screams to us. I'm one of you. I know. Not, I'm not Bette Midler's God watching you from the distance. I'm, I'm the God that put myself in human flesh and I know what you're going through so that when you pray I can respond he's with you in the valley today would you sing this before we walk out of this one time you may know it if you don't it's an old song let it ring in your heart Emmanuel he's with you Lord, walk with us in this in-between time. God with us. He'll never leave you alone. He'll never forsake you. team would you make yourself available this morning and I just I just want to I'm going to pray a benediction today the blessing by the way I learned to pray pray that from one of my liturgical brothers who prayed that over his people and about 10 years ago it just became part of who I was to speak that blessing over you I'm going to do that but I want you to know because Emmanuel is here there's no reason why we can't ask Him to touch our hearts, our bodies, and ask Him to cleanse us and forgive us. If you need Jesus as Savior, if you need Him as healer, if you need Him as provider, if you have a need today, these people are here. We're ready to pray with you. There's no reason you should carry that burden on your own. He is there to walk with you. Even as I pray the blessing, the benediction today, 
If you have a need and you want somebody to agree with you in prayer about a miracle in your life, Emmanuel is here. He is, Jesus is in this room to forgive and heal and provide. Make your way to the altar even while I pray and let these people pray with you. They're just going to make themselves available. Father, will you bless them and keep them? Will you make your face shine down upon them? Will you be gracious to them? Will you turn your countenance their direction and give them peace? In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We're going to keep the environment worshipful and prayerful. God bless you.